My guest on this episode of the Living Peace Podcast is Chantelle Chapman. Chantelle Chapman is the founder of WT Finances. She's the mindful money coach known for her edgy, relatable, and soulful mindful financial literacy guidance. In her work, Chantelle draws on her experience as a mortgage broker, personal finance coach, yogi, and a meditation teacher. Outside of being a mindful money teacher and credit expert, Chantelle is working on building an accessible alternative to traditional post-secondary education. You can learn more about Chantelle Chapman by visiting www.whatthefinances.ca. Chantelle Chapman, welcome to Living Peace Podcast. Thank you, Henry. I'm so excited to be doing this with you. Thank you. It is a, it is a joy to have you. So, Chantelle, I, I was reading a lot about you, uh, and I really just decided to start by asking you to tell us what it is that you do. Sure. Um, so I would call myself um, a, an educator. Um, I'm, I'm a mindful money teacher. So I work with people um, who are dealing with financial distress. Um, I also work with a lot of entrepreneurs as well and, um, and help them position their brand in a way that connects with who they are and aligns with their purpose. Um, the two might seem very, very different, but they're actually so similar because when people come to me and I work with them around their financial distress, there's a little bit of a, um, a loss of self happening, um, not so aligned with their path, working from a place of maybe past trauma, and it's creating bad relationship with money. When I work with entrepreneurs, it's a very, very similar thing. So they're looking to get back on their path, their journey, something that aligns with themselves, and not be so orientated in the past and really kind of get into the present moment. So it's interesting because the, the two um, avenues that I, I work with, they're, they're so, so similar. It's just we're, we're kind of focusing on different things. And even though in my job title, uh, money, does not fit, doesn't, money does not figure into my job title, uh, actually it sounds like what you and I do is quite similar because I work with a lot of people who are – having very difficult conversations about mm -hmm. um, Yeah. And so I am wondering, Chantel, if you have any insight about why uh, conversations about money are so challenging for us. What makes it so challenging to talk about money? Uh, well, I think in our society, the conversation of money is so taboo. Um, in North American society, it's a little bit more welcome to discuss money because the main narrative here is such an economic one. So we're a slightly more comfortable in comparison to I have um, one of my business partners is from Italy and it, 
listening to her talk about um, her family and the conversations around money, it's a lot more taboo in Europe to talk about it. So, you know, we're slightly more open in North America, but it's still very, very uncomfortable. And the um, what we do present outwardly when we talk about money is never really the negative stuff. It's always the, I've done this. I'm an ambitious in this way because I've, you know, can buy this and I can keep up with the Joneses or in our world, keep up with the Kardashians. So there's um, outwardly, we're talking about money. We're having these conversations that have this economic narrative underlying um, but we're not getting to the the real deep conversation, the painful parts of it, the the grasping that we have around money, the aversions that we have around money, the attachments that we have. That's the part of the conversation that's that's harder for people to talk about. And what the question is why why is that? I think it's just because we've been so programmed to um, grow up in this economic narrative that's based on consumerism that we feel inadequate if we're not fitting into that world, right? So to have a, a real raw conversation about the soul of money and the way that we interact with it means that we might be showing our inner fears and our I guess, inner longing for feeling like we belong, feeling love, feeling safe. And it's very scary to expose that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like, Chantel, if, if I'm hearing you right, um, you know, we here in North America can really talk about money, perhaps a little bit more comfortable talking about money on, on, on a superficial level. Yes. And it generally centers around um, having or not having yeah. something that the money the money stands for. Um, yet uh, we never really get to the really deep conversations. Um, yeah. Conversations with money really connects with our most fundamental needs: our needs for connection, our needs for meaning, our need for expansion. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and really and really going deep with that. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how um, do you in your practice, in your work, um, have these conversations to go deep mm -hmm. that touch on these things that we are so insecure about and so mm -hmm. uncomfortable about that go to the very core of some of our most fundamental fears and discomforts? Yeah, so great question. Um, in my practice and the way I work with people, it's my first, my first step is to create an environment and a space that feels comfortable. Um, so when I meet with clients in person, if I'm doing an event, um, if I meet with them on video call, we always take a moment to just like slow down and take a deep breath in. And just really like sink into the space, feeling the support underneath us of the chair, wherever we're sitting, taking time to kind of connect. Um, that's always step one. And once we, we get to that place, we're giving ourselves the time and the space to pull away from the hijacked part of the brain. Because what happens when someone is about to talk about money is they start getting quite emotional. 
and it, and it's hard for them. And I see a lot of people that I work with, a lot of emotions do arise and that's totally normal. So I also set the stage for them and let them know that this, you are going to get emotional. This is going to be hard to talk about, but this is a safe container to do this. Um, so that's an incredibly important part of my practice. And then I, I use some of my own storytelling um, as an example so that they know they're not alone because you were talking about like that, the deepest needs as a human being. Um, oftentimes, like there's a lot of narratives around our relationship with money that impact the way we deal with money, even the way we discuss money. Um, and oftentimes these narratives, they can come from, you know, the programming, the consumerism programming that we, the economic narrative that we get from society, but also childhood narratives. But below every single narrative, it always comes down to two things I'm always seeing. One, I, I want to feel loved. And two, I feel fear, right? So I just cut to that right away and say, hey, listen, this is typically like what's going to come out. And you're also going to start noticing things that when we start talking about money and your relationship with money, you're going to notice that you're going to see some similarities between the way you're handling money and the way you handle your time or your relationship with food or maybe your relationship with codependency and relying on people. Money is, is simply a tool that allows us to have an insight into a greater picture on what's going on. So when I start talking about it and framing it like that, um, from a place of being very open and non-judgmental, people start to relax. And it is, it's definitely the reaction that I get from clients is like, I haven't heard about it like this way. Because um, a lot of times people will come and work with me and they've maybe been working with financial planners or even debt counselors. And there's a lot of like um, shame tied to that, you know, so to, you know, start off by taking away that shame and creating that safe container, like I said, is absolutely, it is the foundation of all the work that I do. They need to know that they're safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something, something that I'm hearing from you, Chantel, is, um, again, something that I do a lot of my work uh, and, and teach others to do, and that is first to tune in. Yeah, tune you know, in, yeah. And that's how we get to uh, to that mindfulness piece, which I know is, is very, very critical uh, in, both, in both of our work. So just tuning in and then observing um, without evaluating, um, both within ourselves um, and then within, within other people. But something else that's arising for me as I, as I am listening to you is I think of all this new age success literature, you know, in the film like The Secret and uh, Think and Grow Rich, all of these programs and books that talk about the law of attraction and abundance and attracting. And for me, my concern with, with all of this literature is uh, that I think it's missing a piece. So there's a lot of focus on you know, how to attract a new car, a new house, a parking spot, whatever, whatever it is. But there is relatively little emphasis on where the attraction is coming from. Um, 
So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or comments on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I completely agree with what you're saying, um, Henry, and I relate to that because um, I hear a lot, like especially in my space that I work in, a lot about manifesting, manifesting mm. your dream car, manifesting this, manifesting that. And I feel like it's setting a lot of people up for failure because there's such a big missing component there. Mm. Um, and you know, there's the one thing is like manifesting material things. Like, well, first of all, once I see, when I work with clients and that is their number one goal, I can already tell there's something there that needs to be healed, mm -hmm. right? You know, and, and if it's, if you're going to be living a life that's longing for a manifestation of um, material things, it, it feels to me like it's going to be a life of longing and potentially suffering. So mm -hmm. that's always something that I listen very closely to and like to address. And I feel like that's missing in the manifestation conversation. Um, mm -hmm. Like what is it that you're manifesting? Another thing too is um, it's, you can't, you cannot be in a place of suffering and stress and chaos in the brain and be manifesting at the same time because that chaos and that stress is going to, you're basically, you're basically using the positive thinking to disassociate with the, the healing that needs to happen, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's something that I think is important. I, I think manifesting is a beautiful practice. Um, creating a vision for yourself is a beautiful practice, but there's a certain level of, you know, awareness that has to happen. There's a certain level of healing that has to happen. So we're not moving from a place of suffering to disassociation to grasping and longing and then it, that becomes a cycle versus truly becoming free because we've actually done the work to heal and then we can get to a place of manifesting from clarity and creative detachment and really you know connect with our vision and really align with a path that feels very good mm -hmm. yeah so I think, in other words, it's coming, it's where the manifestation coming from. Is it coming from our neurosis? Yeah. And the state of wanting. Uh, so what you talked about earlier, consumerism, you know, the constant desire to have more, better, bigger. Yeah. Um, because that's the only way we feel good about ourselves. So that becomes mm -hmm. it. Or coming from a place of clarity, from a place of peace, where vision becomes vision arises and without being attached to that vision um we start start taking concrete steps towards that vision always being open mm -hmm. to that yeah. vision changing and modifying and being open to other opportunities and then it seems that manifestation happens on mm -hmm. a whole different level um, mm -hmm. a whole different experience of yeah. manifestation absolutely Mm. Yeah. So um, in terms of talking about abundance and, and, and money, um, we have to have a conversation about the deeper, the deeper meanings behind, behind that. 
So do you find that when you create space for, for your clients and work with them, do you find them to be forthcoming about what's truly, um, what's truly at the bottom of it? How do you get to the bottom of what's behind their, their money issues? Um, so yeah, they, yes and no, they, um, I've had some situations where I've had clients who, um, you know, they will tell me a story and then they'll, they'll send me an email and say, actually, this is really what's going on, <laughs> you know, and, and to me, um, as a teacher, I, I, I look at uh, situations like that and I say, you know, I need to I need to make sure um, that they understand that this is part of their process that you know the fact that I even didn't tell the truth that's part of the process that's part of the pain that needs to be healed right so I always make sure that I um, explain that to them and there's no there's no guilt there's no shame you know and a lot of times when I'm working with people there's this level of disclosure that happens. Um, like, um, Chantal, I, I feel really awful. I went and I went on a shopping spree and spent a bunch of money. And typically the first time they tell me that they delay in telling me because they're so afraid of what I'm going to say because of the programming that they've experienced their entire life. And my reaction is always very positive and very caring and um, one that is nurturing and we, we try and unpack it and understand it. And so from that moment, like I'm always so grateful for those opportunities when um, someone doesn't want to say something, but then they do. And then we work through it because in those moments, that's where we have the greatest realizations and the greatest lessons. Mm -hmm. um, and so I haven't, I haven't really experienced people holding back too much because I do a lot of work around making people feel very safe. Um, that's a lot of foundational work that um, takes place in the beginning of a relationship with the client. And I do that too with my own humility, you know, sharing stories of the, the mistakes that I've made and making sure that they know that I've been there. And, and we, and we talk a lot about the world that we live in and, and, you know, us trying to fit in into the world that we live in is the crazy thing, not us being honest and saying, hey, I racked up my credit card and I have no money to make a payment. That's not crazy. The crazy thing is, is that, you know, there's there's neuroscientists that work with marketing companies and copywriters to create messaging that convinces us to buy something that we don't need when we can't afford it. You know, that's the crazy thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Chantal, you touched on something I think that is really um, critical, um, as I found in working with a lot of people in, um, who are going through, through difficulties, and that is the connection between money and addiction. Yeah. And, and compulsive, compulsive behaviors. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, there's an amazing doctor that I've um, done some training with here actually in Vancouver, Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, he's written a couple wonderful books um, and he's worked with addicts quite a bit. And he defines addiction as when we do something over and over again 
to temporarily release pain and increase pleasure in the moment that has negative consequences. So when you hear that definition, it all almost it, it gives you some, some permission to say, wait a minute, I look at my Instagram in that way, or I eat chocolate in that way, or I hang out with toxic people in that way because it's like fun to go out to eat, or you know, I go to Whole Foods um, five nights a week to get food quickly because in the moment I need that emotional satisfaction. You know, and um, versus like traditionally we think of someone in addiction as, oh, they have a substance abuse problem, they are a drug addict or they're an alcoholic. And I think um, to some level we all are addicts and we're all addicts because of this world that we live in and the programming, the consumerism programming that we have, right? So um, I've, I've studied addiction quite a bit and I use... Um, I use the work that I've done in addiction in my work quite a bit because a lot of the, the behaviors that I see with people who have financial distress are so similar to addiction. So, um, you know, I always say like every single person, especially if you live in a, the North, uh, North American Western society, you need to create your own program whether it's a 12-step program, whether it's a spiritual program, whether it's a program where you, like your higher power is quantum physics, whether your program is all about community and building relationships, but you, you as an individual has to, you have to define a program that's not the er- narrative that this Western society is ran by. Because if you do not, it's so easy to, move to the loss of self. Mm-hmm. And I think just building up, building on, uh, on that, Chantel, um, I am observing in, in, in this culture, crisis of meaning. And when I say yeah. this in North America, um, you know, in the West, the West generally, where um, more and more people find very little meaning um, in their existence and in, yeah. in their everyday life. And so then, um, money or sex or drugs or, or, or what you, you name it um, becomes that way to create meaning, mm-hmm. except that it never does. Yeah. And so then people find themselves in these spirals. Yeah. Um, searching for more and more meaning and yet looking at all the wrong, in all the wrong places. Yeah. So can you talk maybe a little bit about, um, the conversations you have with people uh, that go really deep, that go towards yeah. meaning. You know, what is um, ultimately why, why? Why do they need money? Why is money relevant or important for them? Aside from you know having a place to live or or, or fitting in with someone else, how yeah. do you have those conversations? Yeah. So. Um I love that question, and that that um, search for meaning is a core part of the work that I do with my mindful money clients. But it's also a core part of the work that I do with the entrepreneurs that I coach. Um, and 
I always use um, this example uh, with both clients, and uh, it goes back to philosophy. So I'm a big philosophy nerd, <laughs> and uh, there was this uh, philosopher, and he came up with this. Um, he was he was searching for what is the meaning of life? What is true happiness in life? How how is someone really um, in a state of well being? And he said, I think that. Um, uh, true happiness lies in this hedonic lifestyle. So hedonic meaning doing something to increase pain or pleasure and decrease pain. So the more pleasure we have in our life and the less pain, the happier we'll be in our life. Sounds very similar to the definition of addiction. This hedonic, hedonism, increase of pleasure, decrease of pain. Wonderful if it can last a long time, but oftentimes it doesn't. Um, because as human beings, we experience the seasons of emotions. And that's, what's, that's the beautiful part of being a human being, the ups and downs, the cycles, right? And uh, so Aristotle came around and he's like, no, 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 that is not the, the way to happiness. And he came up with this word called eudaimonic happiness or eudaimonic well-being. And the word comes from uh, diamond, so eudaimonic, diamond. And if you think of the way a diamond is made, it's, it's a rock and it goes through a lot of pressure and it, it comes out and it's incredibly beautiful. So what Aristotle said is eudaimonic well-being is really when you connect to a vision and meaning, you have a sense of purpose and you also find uh, states of flow in your life. Um, so these two concepts, hedonic well-being eudaimonic well-being, they've been studied by psychologists and, and uh, therapists for many, many years. And I've read many research studies about them. And, and sure enough, they have found that people who live a hedonic life, they, feel, they see higher levels of depression and they see higher, higher states of like maybe bliss, but it doesn't last very long. Whereas someone who lives a eudaimonic life, they're connected to a greater purpose. They're connected to a, something that they're, uh, is meaningful, they're passionate about. They're finding ways to access flow states in their life. So we can access flow states through meditation. We can access flow states through going for a long run. You know, um, coders who code um, programs, if they love that, they could get into a flow state doing that. Through art, we can access flow state, through community, through dance, all these different things. And then that, alongside of something that is meaningful and connecting us to our purpose, they found that they saw lower levels of depression in people who live their life like this and longer lasting feelings of bliss. So one thing that I do with both my sets of clients, the entrepreneurs I coach and the mindful money uh, clients I coach, is I have them do an inventory on their life and they look at time and they look at money. And I mean, depending on the other, the entrepreneurs, sorry, other, um, they could look at other avenues in their life and um, they will uh, do an inventory and categorize what part of their life is hedonic and what part of their life is eudaimonic. So if we're talking about a money client, we'll look at their discretionary spending. And oftentimes they see that the money that they don't want to be spending is hedonic spending. 
And then we, we look at that and we're like, okay, well, what's this pain that you're trying to run away from right now? And then we spend some time trying to figure out what that pain is. Um, so, yeah. So going back to the eudaimonic side, once, once we kind of do that inventory, then we spend some time starting to define their eudaimonic life. So we look at, um, we look really at some of their passions in their life, some of their desires that are not hedonic desires, and then we start working on um, this amazing uh, concept that was created by uh, one of my friends, Cameron, Cameron Harold, called a vivid vision plan. So we basically map out, like in three years, who, who do you want to be? But we do this from a very meaningful place. What type of work do you want to do? How do you want to show up in the world? What type of change would you like to see in the world? And then we start mapping out either their business or their financial life around that. Once they can see that vivid, that vivid vision, it's so much easier for them to always go back to that as their higher power if they don't have another higher power that they connect with and follow along with that so they know that they're continuing on this eudaimonic path. Mm. And Chantal, as, I am, uh, as I'm listening to you, what, what, what I'm thinking about and what's arising for me is really that our educational system is, is, is um, really very supportive of that hedonistic path. Yeah. Um, and, and it's primarily teaching children, young people to fit in. And it's, it's, very, it's very much an industrial revolution, uh, an industrial-based, industrial revolution-based education system that is preparing people to become little particles in a machine. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to find me if, if you if you are just um, a part of a bigger machine. But I know in, in, in our previous conversations, I know education is something you're very, very passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts on what can we do to change our education, to change our educational system, um, to create people that are more connected with their mm-hmm. meaning? more connected with their purpose, who are more prepared to not just exist or barely, not just exist, but live fully, live a truly meaningful uh, and serviceful life. Mm -hmm. Wow, that question, Henry. There's so, so much that can be, could be done with the educational system. Um, I, I, guess I want to start off by saying um, the educational system um, is so, it's so linear with time, which I think is one of the challenges um, because it, that linear time um, is part of that programming that says you go to school, then you graduate, and then you go to post-secondary, you go to college or university, and then you finish and then you get a job and then you buy a house and then you you know buy this and you buy that and you just keep buying and buying and and then you know that's just really what life is you fit into this society and and that's kind of how it is um so the the linear part of the education system i find 
um, to be a bit of a problem. And I, I work with a lot of teenagers and the pressure that teenagers are under when they're like 16, 17 to know the answer to what they're going to do for the rest of their lives is it's crazy to me. Like if someone came to me and said, you know, what's, what's the purpose of life? What are you going to do? Like, why are you here? That's the biggest question you could ask. And we're putting all that pressure on teenagers because they, as soon as high school is done, you have to go to college and you have to know exactly what you want to do. Because if you don't know exactly what you're going to do, you're going to waste money because college is very expensive. And the return on investment of college is not really there anymore. Right. So there's that whole side of it as well. College and university in North America is a consumer product. Right. And so I think um, our relationship with time and just understanding that things change. And as we grow and as we evolve, we we uh, realize like really more and more what our path is. So that, that's one side, is taking some of the pressure off the time, allowing people the space to go through the self-realization. And, you know, just thinking about teenagers making the decision of going to college or university, we know that the teenage brain is not one that is equipped to answer these, the greatest questions in life, right? So there, that's one side of it. The other part that you asked was the element of service. Mm -hmm. I, I just thinking that's such an interesting question, Henry. And I'm thinking about like my experience in school and, and I don't feel like there was any element of service in school that I was taught whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So that right there is what, where is the focus on that? Where is the focus on being of service? You know, um, so that, that's really missing. And I, I do have an online school and um, part of my online school is every single time we sell a course, we give free access to someone in a marginalized community. And that's how we are of service. So we've actually built it into our business model. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we did it that way versus, you know, just giving money to a charity, which we do as well, is I really want a student who buys a course to feel the impact of their choice for that, that education and, and connect to that that feeling of service um, because you're right it is missing it's definitely missing so that question is just such a big question there's just so so much we can do in the education system I also think um, the cost of post-secondary education in North America it really creates a divide between the rich and the poor and it creates the marginalized communities marginalized or it, it keeps the marginalized communities marginalized so there's a whole other issue economically going on around there, which is really social injustice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Chantel, one of the reasons I, I asked you uh, about education, and I know, of course, how passionate you are about it, but I also know that in your own personal journey, um, yeah. non uh, 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 maybe slightly less linear path, <laughs> yeah, definitely. What most people take, uh, and obviously that has worked well for you. So do you mind sharing your story, your journey of how sure. 
you yeah. got to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I grew up um, in, um, at one point in my life, I was with a single mother and um, my dad was an addict and, and we lived in social housing. So I, I lived and experienced being in a marginalized community um, in poverty. Um, as I was growing up, the just the opportunity of going to a good school, it wasn't really, um, it didn't feel available to me. It's almost like the bar was set so low for me. Um, and yeah, so I just like, I just didn't even really have that on my radar because I didn't think I could. And I think it's because I knew it was really expensive. I knew, you know, my mom didn't have the money. And, and so, so there was that whole thing going on. Um, and then on the other side, because I grew up in an environment where there was scarcity economically, it made me, it created a fuel in me um, that I really desired safety and security. So what that ended up, that played into for me was working as soon as I could get a job when I was a teenager, I worked. I worked full time and went to high school. And then um, when I graduated school, I, I worked incredibly hard. I worked two jobs. I, got, I became self-employed as a mortgage broker at 21. Um, and I was just kind of like, I would call it ladder hacking. You know, like in our society that's so linear, we're supposed to, um, you know, work our way up, get the job, uh, work our way up to the next level, get the promotion, you know, graduate school, et cetera, et cetera. It's very linear. And I was just looking for opportunities that I could shortcut um, to, to give myself that sense of security that I fe felt like I didn't have growing up. Um, so I became a mortgage broker at 21. Nobody gets a mortgage from a 21-year-old. <laughs> so what ended up happening is I felt really inadequate in that role. And because as a mortgage broker, I was self-employed, I wasn't making any money unless I could close a mortgage. So um, I really hustled and I taught myself everything I could possibly know about business, finance, marketing, because I needed to close some deals and it really came out of that desire for the security. Um, I decided in that, that kind of um, process of teaching myself for survival, I did take some classes at college like in economics, but mm -hmm. I always had this like rebellious side to me where I would never go to the exams because <laughs> I was like, I don't need your approval. I'm just here for the education. And my approach was also, it was, all, was always um, finding education in different sources and self-education. So I read a lot. And I would find out like what some of the university and college um, courses, what their reading lists were, and I would go and buy those books and I would just read them on my own accord. So that was really kind of a lot of my own education. And then I found teachers. I found people that I guess they could be mentors or teachers, people that I looked up to, and I read their stories. I... Um, wanted to learn from them and what they did and that that's really kind of how my education came together and and I was as I was working in as a mortgage broker um, 
my path really started to unfold when I had this opportunity to um, open a marketing consulting company. So I did that for a while and I left the mortgage world and I started consulting for large corporate finance companies in Canada, um, working in PR and marketing, but all within the finance realm and uh, working with a lot of different entrepreneurs and then, you know, just really surrendering to my path and being open to what comes next. It kind of put me in the position to open my mindful money business just because I was working through my own story, my own pain around money. I knew everything there was to know about finance and how it worked. And um, that all just came together. It just came together. And that's kind of where I'm at today. And then the education business that I have. Um, so my education company uh, teaches creative entrepreneurs about business. And we do it in a very unconventional way. Our teachers in that school are people who um, have created their own path. They, they didn't go the traditional route. And I really want to showcase those stories because I, I don't want someone, you know, some person who grows up in a poor community to think that they don't have a way out of the cycle of poverty because they can't afford the tuition to go to university. I want these stories to be showcased as inspiration to break those patterns for people and allow them to be elevated and rise out of the pain that they've experienced. So as you hear me talking about this, you can probably get a feel for the underlying meaning and purpose behind all the work that I do. And I, I was so lucky to be able to discover that many years ago. And I have that written down and I always go back to that. Anytime a new opportunity comes up, I go back to my, um, basically my mission and my purpose and my commitment to be of service. And I say, is this opportunity aligned with that? Yes, wonderful. Open yourself to it, surrender. If it's not, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how beautiful and, and, and really inspiring. And I'm so glad, Chantel, that you, you shared um, your story. Thank you. Uh, I think it's, it's really a true inspiration. Uh, I certainly felt very inspired as I was listening to you, but I think it's inspiration to many people in that um, they don't have to take the linear path. Um, yeah. The linear path is not the only thing that is there. And that sometimes when we take a path that is, made, that, that is not so linear, um, there is greater meaning, purpose, and opportunity to serve there. And I think yeah embody that so i i thank you for it thank you yeah well you know henry um your teacher anon said to me one time that when i spend time um you know really connecting to myself what will flow through me is that detached creativity and through that and that resonated so deeply because through that detached creativity um it is really where I've kind of arrived in the place that I am with my work that is detached creativity allows me to say, I can do this. I don't have to follow this path that goes like this. If I detached myself through, through this, the creativity to create and deliver what I want to do that's connected to my meaning, my vision, it just flows. And it flows with so much ease. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Because then it's coming, it's coming from that place, the space, the space of peace. Yeah, the space of peace. Yeah. You know, and, and, and truly some, something else that, that, that Anand um, has taught um, and, and that has influenced my work in, in a great deal was also that, you know, we so often we, we, we either suppress or express whatever yeah. is arising within us, right? Um, so if we're talking about emotion, Express or express our emotion or our desire or our wants. And both really can be quite violent. Um, yeah. Both suppressing or expressing because, because it, can, it can come from our conditioning and compulsions and addictions and, 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 and the pressure to be, to fit in into that mm-hmm. linear path. And then um, when we start learning meditation or some of the other uh, mindfulness practices, we, we find that there is a third way. And the third way is to observe. And the more we observe, um, then the more spaciousness there is in our life. And then that spaciousness allows us to have that sense of detachment. And then for things to arise from that detachment. And then it's truly what we talked about earlier. Um, That space of detachment is a space of true abundance. Mm, Yes. That's where yeah. all of that um, starts to arise from it. It is not from uh, sort of our, a neurotic mind and constantly thinking about things and fig- planning and figuring out what we're taught in, in, in traditional traditional approach, um, but actually having a lot of silence, a lot mm-hmm. of sleep, and tuning in and then letting things rise rise from there. Beautiful. Yes, I really feel that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chantel Chapman, thank you so much uh, for joining us here on the Living Peace podcast. Thank uh, I you. I know in the description we'll put how uh, how uh, our followers, listeners can get in touch with you and, and, and follow you and follow your work. I don't know if there is any um, any programs that you have coming up um, that you want to mention or mention perhaps a way that people. Uh, can can reach out to you as I said. We'll put it in the description. But if you if there is anything like that you would like to add, uh, please. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I actually. Um, well, you'll have my website up there. What the finances. Um, but I uh, have a mindful money course, online course launching soon. And um, like I've mentioned before, I do work one on one with clients. And yeah, but. Uh, Besides that, Henry, I'm so grateful for this time and this conversation with you. It was so nice to chat with you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chantel. Thank you. Uh, Let me just stop recording.